0: The year was 1967. I was a freshman in high school, 14 years old, and it was the year of the big snow. Now, 1978 and 1980 have, may have dumped more snow on the ground, but in my memory bank, it is the snow of 1967, with roughly four feet of snow on the ground and it was a Saturday afternoon, maybe two weeks after the big snow in January, that Donnie and Herbie Johnson and Ralphie Kuhn and Roy Olson and myself and Paul Sanche, and my brother Jim decided that it would really be fun to throw snowballs at all of the houses in our neighborhood. Now how we arrived at this really stupid decision is a mystery to me looking back, but we did and it was really fun until, you guessed it, we came to my own house. (laughs) My dad worked two jobs at the time. He worked on weekends as a bookkeeper. For the Savarama store, which was on the corner of Schmale Road and Geneva, it, it has had several reiterations since then. I think it's now a Cadoba or a Chipotle or something. But back then it was Savarama, and he kept the books there. But not this Saturday. This Saturday afternoon he was home. He was seated in his easy chair in the living room, his back to the picture window. Doing what he loved to do best, he was reading a Louis L'Amour Western novel, plate of chocolate chip cookies to his right, hot coffee with cream and sugar to his left. And I don't think it would be hyperbole to suggest that a more contented man was ever on the planet than he that day, until his reverie was interrupted by the concussive force of a a two-and-a-half-pound ice ball catapulting into the window, not four inches from his head. The window did not shatter. It would have made a better story had it shattered, but then I wouldn't be here to tell it. (laughs) I'm going to mercifully spare you the details of the rest of the story, which was not pretty and very predictable. But later, when my father came into my room to talk about it, he recounted the foolishness of our thinking. But that really wasn't what was bothering him. That I would throw snowballs at my own house was a mark of disrespect and dishonor even. And to think that I could treat our own castle in that manner, whose roof protected my own head from the snow as it fell, was something that he could not come to terms with and didn't wish to try not only that, it was, in his estimation, a sign of utter disrespect to him, of unexpected derision to his very person. Well, the talk went on for a while and it seemed a bit overwrought to me. And I really didn't hear a lot of it. I was more concerned that supper would be denied to me once again. But to this day the lesson has not left me and it is why I pushed my chair in at a restaurant. And it is why we make the beds in our hotel rooms before we leave for the day. We may not make them at home, but we will make them in the hotel room. It's why we don't put our bare feet up against the windshield of your car when we ask you for a ride home. At least I'm pretty sure that we don't. I actually got in terrible trouble for doing that exact thing on my first job, but that's another story for another day. One of the lessons from this book in Acts is that honor will be demanded on occasion, and it will be given to those to whom it is due. It is, a, in its essence, a non-negotiable thing, and the Apostle Paul will demand it, not for his own sake, but for the honor of the king in whose name he serves. So in the previous message, which in retrospect I've titled, The Gospel Must Be Enough, I've presented four scenes, if you will. Oh, I have to, to, to uh, mention this. The title of the series is um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Dave Clark came up to me after the service last week and wanted to know if I had been making out of piles of mashed potatoes copies of the city of Philippi. And only if you've seen the movie will you even remotely get what that's about. (laughs) I presented four scenes. The first was the city of Philippi. The second was the story of how we meet Lydia in Scripture, titled, A Most Extraordinary Woman. The third was a young woman doubly cursed, the slave girl with the spirit of a python, whom Paul exercised. Finally, the piper must be paid. In this message, I'm going to be presenting Act 2, similar kind of structure to it. We're going to have curtains falling and rising on various scenes. And they are, and I hope your, your thumb is still in the scripture passage for this morning. 25 and 26, it's a scene I'm entitling, Shaken Foundations. 27 through 29, a bright light in a very dark place. 30 through 34, a nest of improbabilities. Four scene, Roman soldier, Roman law in service of the Most High God, 35 through 39. And one last scene, verse 40 considered by itself. Though the dog barks, the caravan moves on. And I'll be explaining that as we go along. But before we, we, we read scripture, and before we walk through these five scenes and make some observations and ask some questions, because I'm taking no chances, I'm going to tell you up front what the conclusion is, and I'm going to do that right now. Here's the takeaway from this morning. The gospel of Jesus is greater far than the impressive strength of the cold human heart. It is greater far than the laws and conventions of empire. It is greater far than even the stronger conventions of culture. It is greater far than the power of demonic oppression and greater far than the one that would point a finger to you and to me and say, you hypocrite, you are not worthy of this gospel that you proclaim. You are like travel agents passing out brochures to places you've never Then, And the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater far than that accusation. It is greater far than the outer limits of our very real intense suffering. It is greater far than the irrational power of the human mob. And it's greater than man's false gods and his wobbling philosophies. We need no better place to stand. It is firm and immovable and in its strength and might it will stoop to comfort the sorrowful and it will kiss the forehead of the frightened child. It will lift its voice to sing in all times and all places even in a pitch black prison cell and if there then where is the place where its light will not shine. That's the takeaway from this morning. So reading verses 25 through 26, the curtain rises on a scene that I have called Shaken Foundations. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to him, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So the curtain rises on this scene, and it's not a pretty one. Paul and Silas are in the, quote, inner prison. I'm, I'm associating that with maybe the basement in the prison, or maybe an inner cell that has no windows and no communication even with the sun outside of a window. They've been placed there under the watchful eye of a jailer that we met just briefly last week, and it's this Philippian jailer that we will get to know better today. They're sitting, presumably, with their feet in stocks, stripped of their clothing, perhaps. They are beaten, bloody, dirty, abused, abased. Not only that, but it's dark. It is probably pitch dark. They have no window into the night, and it has been, to this point, a very long day. We don't know where Timothy and Luke are at this point. They're traveling companions. My guess would be, logically, that they would probably be at Lydia's house pondering next steps. So it's midnight, or thereabouts, and they are against all odds doing what? They're singing and praying. And it says that the other prisoners were doing what? They were listening. There's a lot of listening going on in this chapter. Wherever Paul speaks, people listen. They're straining their ears to hear the voices of these two strangers among them in the dark. And the other prisoners in their collective uncertainties and fear for what tomorrow might bring, they begin to hear a low rumble. Just as an aside, by the way, one of our missionaries, Tim Kelly and his wife Linda, for many years hosted the church in their home in Wolfsburg, Germany. But as they outgrew that, they built a building over time and they moved into it. But Tim's neighbors approached him when they moved and they said, you know what we're going to miss? We're going to miss in the neighborhood the sound of your singing. They heard it on their back porches and in their kitchen tables. The power of song is evocative and make no mistake, believers this morning, the world wants to and needs to hear us sing. By the way, it's why I love the church building that's in South Naperville. I think it's on Gartner, kind of by the Trader Joe's off of Washington. I love it because the sanctuary is floor-to-ceiling glass that overlooks the neighborhood. Anybody walking by would be able to see the site of people worshiping Christ. Now if they had windows that opened then that would be really something and I don't know the answer to that question. Anyway it makes you wonder what that would be like if the world could hear us sing this morning. Maybe that's part of the benefit of the stream actually. And good morning to those of you who are listening via the stream. So this rumble that they're hearing becomes a cracking, racking sound and the stones begin to grind upon one another. The floor beneath their feet begins to move, to undulate. Has anybody here been in an earthquake? Raise your hand. I know that there's got to be some. Um, I want to hear your stories because I can't imagine, as an Illinoisan standing here today, to have the ground under your feet begin to shift and move is something I don't think I ever really want to experience. I can only imagine the horrible sinking feeling of the ground under your feet turning to jelly. Now, can you imagine the added horror if you were in a prison cell and add to that having your feet in stocks chained to a bolt in the wall as the earthquake happens. You talk about jailhouse rock. I couldn't, I couldn't resist. It's not even that funny, but I just couldn't resist. Let's go back to the response of the other prisoners for a moment. Like so many others in the narrative, they're listening. Lydia listened, right? Philippian jailer listens. The prisoners listen. He's like E.F. Hutton. When he speaks, people what? They listen. Like moths to a flame, they're drawn to the gospel presented with authenticity and passion. People listened for words of life back then, and they do today as well. I remember my Aunt Myrna, who married into the family... She made the very unfortunate decision to marry my Uncle Richard. Neither of them, by their own admission, knew the first thing about how to live life in anything resembling a functional order. Fleeing from state to state and one bill collector to another. Life for them was like a chaotic scene of trying to outrun a snowball growing as it's careening down a mountainside until... They heard and saw the gospel played out in strength. And many years later, Myrna said, You know, Chuck and Gwen showed us, taught us, how you can live. It's a simple statement, yes, and yet it underlines our best confession and our best hope because there are many who would say to us, Believe it or not, this is is true. We know that we don't know how to live, and if you can show us, we are all ears." So the next thing that happens in this unlikely scene is that the building somehow hangs together but the prison doors swing wide. It would appear all of them. And not only that, but the bonds of every prisoner fall from their hands. You can almost hear the stunned silence. The only sound would be the creak of hinges and the clanking of heavy iron falling off of wrists and ankles, and it's no wonder that every single prisoner simply sat in shocked silence at the power of this unstoppable force, whatever it was, that seemed to be at the service of these brave and mysterious strangers who sing. So as the curtain falls, we see the jailer entering the prison, and in shock and with a strange resolve, draws his sword slowly out of his scabbard. And the curtain falls on that scene, and it rises on another that I'm titling A Bright Light in a Very Dark Place, 27 through 29, or 28 and 29. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in Trembling with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. So the curtain rises on this scene, and it's a scene of shadow and darkness, probably dust in the air. The jailer rushes in, keys in hand, but they're not really needed, are they? And it's dark. Luke, who by now has demonstrated, and I I love this about this this, uh, epic narrative, there is no detail that is without significance in the story. He takes pains to make this darkness clear to us. The jailer can't see what's going on exactly, but with doors opened, stocks and manacles lying about on the cracked and heaved floors, he concludes the worst, takes out his sword to carry out the only honorable choice open to him. But strangely, Paul has a pretty uncanny insight and immediately and urgently calls out, stop, do not do yourself harm. We are all here. Wow. If it was me, I would have held my peace, wait and see how things would play out to keep my options open. But not Paul. Paul speaks and people listen. And they thereby live. Notice the jailer's response. He can only see dimly, so he immediately calls for lights. They are brought and he rushes into the prison, finds his way over fallen stones into the inner prison where he finds paul and silas still wounded still bleeding still bruised perhaps as far as we know perhaps with no clothing at all and what does he do it says two things first he trembled with fear as well he might his life was on the line here hang him by a thread hang him by the words of paul Second, he fell down before Paul and Silas. You note the incongruity? He's the one with the sword. He's the one with the keys. He's the one with the marks and the accoutrements that go with power. He's the one with the job. He's the one with the responsibility. He's the one with all the accountability to his bosses, the magistrates. And yet, who is bowing before whom? It's a brief scene. He's bowing before these two men, ambassadors in the service of their king. It's a brief scene, and as the lights fade to black, we cannot be struck at the power of this Most High God." Curtain falls. As the curtain rises on the third scene, I'm entitling it, A Nest of Improbabilities, and I'm borrowing that phrase from John Stott's commentary where he actually quotes someone else as describing these scenes as filled from stem to stern with the improbable or the impossible. Every single turn, every single conversation becomes part of a nest of improbabilities. He says in verse 30, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we have earthquake. Shackles falling to the ground. Roman soldier trembling in fear. Roman soldier prostrate on the floor before these two wounded prisoners. Paul and Silas bloodied. And in this scene, the improbabilities just grow and they just keep piling on. Why did he prostrate himself? He may well have witnessed or heard about Paul's casting the demon out of the slave girl where he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He may also have witnessed the demeanor and the courage of these two men as they bore the blows of the crowd and the magistrates. Surely he was a man who recognized authority when he saw it, and lying on the ground he asked the most single prescient question in the world. Sirs, he says, what must I do to be saved? I talked last week about how It was quite likely that this gentleman was a former Roman soldier. And we can infer that from the logic of it in a colony city and also from his responses, which were to kill himself if he couldn't fulfill his sworn duty. So Paul and Silas, still in pain, still oozing blood, have been bound in the middle of an earthquake. They have an answer, and it's the only answer that in the end means anything. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, you and your household. It's interesting that in the same hour, it says, the jailer took him into his house, doubtless after he made sure that the prison doors were shut and guarded well for the remainder of the night. It's interesting to me because time seems to be of the essence in this scene. Notice that the jailer was baptized at once. There's a lot that happens before the dawning of a new day. Think about it. It's midnight or thereabouts, and here's what happens between midnight and the following morning. One, Paul and Silas speak the word of the Lord to the jailer, and pointedly also to everyone that was in his house. They're all baptized. The jailer washes and dresses their wounds. A bit of irony, actually, as the jailer has been cleansed, so he cleanses he sets food before them and finally he rejoices with all his household why that he had believed in God and so it is that in families the spirit of God may indeed and often does convict and save members of households is anybody here this morning thankful for that that that's how the Lord often works. It's why pioneering missionaries present themselves to tribal chiefs for they understand that according to the work of the Holy Spirit when the top domino falls by the work of the Spirit others may fall as well. And of course it's why parents intentionally raise their children in hope and in confidence in the mercy of a gracious Heavenly Father. It's telling here that we're told that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to everyone in the house. So we're left to marvel at the conclusion that the Holy Spirit brought the salvation of Jesus Christ to every member of this now greatly blessed household. And as the curtain drops, we hear the sound of praise and tears and great rejoicing. Curtain falls. Curtain rises on the fourth scene that I'm entitling Roman soldier and Roman law in the service of the Most High God. And if you're still following with me in your Bibles, it's verse 35 through 39. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. It's a bright dawn as the curtain rises, but it would appear that Paul and Silas remain in prison or possibly in house arrest in the house of the jailer. But the first thing that happens is that the police come to the prison with a message for the Roman soldier to give to Paul and Silas. The jailer dutifully passes on the message and you have to wonder did he feel any personal affront at this decidedly inelegant process? Having to relay a message given by means of a lower authority in such a manner. He bids them go in peace, and that's where the story might well end if you or I were writing it. But instead, the tables are turned because the true authority here does not rest with the police officers or the jailer or the magistrates. And before this grand epic story of the book of Acts ends, it will not rest with Rome or even with Caesar himself. The true authority rests every step of the way with the sovereign God Most High. And Paul, with determination and clarity, lays out that chain of command with the words in verse 37 that apparently sent a chill up the spine of everyone who heard. Paul said to them, i am just repeat these, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves take us out. I think it's worth noting that Luke takes the trouble to state the command of the magistrates not once, but twice, we're told in the passage. Their faces will be rubbed in their own presumption before this scene is over and Paul possibly says the words civis romanus sum. And if, if Caleb Hephron is here, he can correct my pronunciation. And the wheels of injustice grind to an immediate halt. The Roman citizen had only to say those words and be immune to punishment. No Roman citizen, according to the Lex Julia, could be bound or beaten by a magistrate or any other person or civil authority, let alone untried and uncondemned. This was a violation that not only placed these authority figures on thin ice, but historically Roman cities had lost their charters for infractions far Less. So Paul follows this with an ultimatum that's as serious as a heart attack to all who heard it. They will come down here personally and they will escort us out of the city. And so Stott points out, and hold on to this to try out at parties, Paul seems to have been responsible for the first ever sit in. That's supposed to be funny folks, but I imagine that many of you have no idea what that term even refers to. But the authorities accede to this demand and further, they do publicly apologize to Paul and Silas and yet, as they leave the prison and the curtain falls on this most unlikely scene, we are left with a couple of really hard questions. Why this insistence of an escort out of the prison with dignity? A couple of possibilities come to mind. One is that Paul was calling them back to their God-appointed task, which was to administer justice fairly and equitably. The second possibility is that Paul, whose eye was always on the future of the church, considered it important that it not be founded on the words of a punished lawbreaker, but upon the higher ground of apostolic authority and power and earned respect. And finally, it was certainly important to the jailer, trained in the ways of power and authority to see up close and personal how structures of true authority really worked in God's economy and according to God's righteous order. The second question for me is a lot harder, which is, and if you remember, I posed this question last week, why on earth did Paul not play this trump card before he was beaten with rods? In Acts 22, we're going to see that he plays it exquisitely. But here, he doesn't play the card until after he's in prison in stocks with his back bloodied after being beaten with rods. Not only that, he has exposed Silas, his companion, to the exact same thing. How do you explain that? A couple couple of possible answers have been posited. One... Maybe he did tell them, but with the mob action, nobody could really hear him. Maybe it did not occur to him until the wee hours of the morning after he had had time to think as he's sitting there in the dark. In which case, he'd be like, oh, why did I not remember? Or could it be that Paul was willing, more than willing, to spend and be spent and understood with peculiar spirit-led insight that his testimony before the jailer and the government and the entire city required that this suffering be endured. Well, the first explanation that he couldn't be heard above the rabble ignores the fact that when Paul speaks anywhere and at any time in this chapter, people do what? They listen to him. And also, Paul has an ability that he's demonstrated before, and he will again, to capture the attention of a crowd. So it seems unlikely that he tried to wiggle out with protests that were not heeded. The second explanation doesn't seem to hold water either, because he's been in this spot before. He's already been stoned twice. He's been persecuted. He's been chased out of the city. He has demonstrated already that he's a man of keen insight, self-possessed, and in command of all of his faculties. To think that he would forget that he had the get-out-of-jail-free card in his pocket would seem preposterous. I think the best explanation is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15, where he says to the Corinthians, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less. Quite simply, he is ready to spend and to be spent for their souls and for the souls of anybody the Lord puts in his path. So I want to make an observation here about this nature of honor or dignity that was sort of the theme of the little story I told at the beginning. Paul seems quite concerned that he be allowed to leave the city with his head held high, as if this Most High God, for whom he is an ambassador, will receive the honor due his name. Further, everything in this chapter has underscored the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And further this respect and honor due will likely help in the incubation and the encouragement of this fledgling church nurtured and founded upon his stripes. And I, th- I think it's really interesting in First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this, For you know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had suffered already and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It's apparent that Paul is still stung by the disrespect and the mistreatment he received in Philippi, yet willing to endure. It's also fascinating. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians. He's concerned here that the Thessalonians will find his personal suffering to be a stumbling block. Here's what he says. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. So we have Paul willing to bear stripes, afflictions, knowing that they would come, nonetheless willing to command the respect that he had won and that was his by birthright: First, to Roman citizenship, and second, to be born again as he was so long ago on that Damascus road. The story I told at the beginning about the snowballs is designed to bring a smile to our face, both at the foolishness of young boys, which seems to be a pretty bottomless pit, sorry guys, and also for the what I found at the time was kind of an overwrought and overblown response on the part of my dad, but there's a gravity to his response, yes? I had violated a code of respect and honor that he considered due to his house and to his name. I never forgot the lesson, actually, and to this day, I push back against statements like the following, hey, grandpa, could you fill in the blank? My response when I remember it is to say, hey is for horses. Or or how about this one? And this one has only ever been said to me in kind of jest, knowing that I get on my high horse about this. Hey, gramps. Now that one deserves death by firing squad, actually. Which means that there is no effective way to punish for that one because that's illegal. And anything else would seem to be uh, too lame. Unless I could call out the person from the pulpit by name. Which I will not do. In this world, we do well to give honor to whom honor is due. I'm still learning that lesson every day. And now there is one additional scene. And it's only one verse. As the curtain rises on verse 40, it says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed We come full circle beautifully here. Paul and company will leave Philippi, but not before they discharge one last important duty. They visit Lydia for what purpose? To encourage the brothers. A couple of observations here, note the phrase, the brothers, this is priceless really and illuminating because while our story ties together the lives of three persons, Paul and his friends have been having many, many encounters. And it appears that a church is being birthed while we were concentrating on these three. Paul's eye is ever on the church. Why does he feel the need to see and encourage the brothers? Well, the passage that I quoted from earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 makes it pretty clear. He wanted to make sure that his own sufferings did not inadvertently cause doubt or fear or misplaced guilt to arise in the minds of these new believers. <coughs> to suffer was their, was his destiny for their health and for the strength of this young church. Paul, the beaten and bruised, was compelled to bring comfort to those who had become dear to him. I love how Matthew Henry puts it. He says, young converts should have a great deal said to them to comfort them, for the joy of the Lord will very much be their strength. This is a word for gentlemen like me, because the merciful word of comfort, given out of a heart of love, should not be hoarded as if it's too precious to express. It's true that the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. His mightiest, in the mightiest, it becomes the throned monarch much better than his crown. So as we conclude this morning, You already know what the conclusion is, don't you? It's greater far. The gospel of Jesus, propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit under the plan of God from before the foundation of the world, will not, cannot go awry. And I've already given you a list of things at the beginning that it is greater than. But let me add a few more because it also has the clear affirmation of history. The Enlightenment did not stop it. The corruption of the church down through the centuries has not stopped it. The scientific revolution did not stop it. Eugenics didn't stop it. Living under the atomic shadow didn't stop it. Racial oppression could not stop it. The various plagues that have come along have not stopped it. It's greater far than the tsunami of blood that was the 20th century, referred to by historians as a slum of a century in which 108 million people died by the sword, and untold numbers of millions died as part of a collateral damage. The gospel is greater far than the times in which we live. Moral and ideological failure has not stopped it, and it will stand like great cliffs described in Nathaniel Hawthorne's beautiful little short novel, The Scarlet Letter. The gospel stands like great cliffs against whose base the waves will break and dissolve. God remains sovereign and people remain, like my father-in-law always said, where you got people, you got what? You got problems. Even in times of pandemic, exquisite personal suffering, times of restricted freedoms, social disintegration, and polarizing anger, even within the church, the gospel train will roll. And as our friend and missionary Aton Kashton said, yes, the dog barks, but the caravan moves on. Praise God. And that's where I intended to finish this morning. But I'm not done yet. Because I've come to care for these three people, and I'm not really willing to say goodbye to them quite yet. And I hope you feel the same way. I hate to say goodbye. I feel like there needs to be a postscript of some kind. What strikes me in this beautifully crafted story is the dialogue more than anything else, clear, transparent, unveiled to the point. I'm struck by the clarity and insight of the Holy Spirit-inspired question of the jailer in 1630. He says, what must I do to be saved? It's the elephant in the room. It's the elephant in every room, in every age he zeroes in on the one question that matters most. And to consider what Paul and Silas answered in return. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, there it is. The question we most long to be answered and the answer so quickly and simply and fervently given. For many of us today here and watching, listening at home, We are on the other side of that question and the answer is well, but it still rings with hope and joy for us. Both the question and the answer to the question are as potent today as they were when the scene took place in time and space on this planet approximately 1,961 years ago, give or take a decade. The point is that the scene took place in our world. It still takes place today. For others here today, or perhaps streaming the service, the question is still echoing with no answering surrender to the Lord Jesus. You may be like my Aunt Myrna, who had the enormous advantage of a dawning and increasingly clear understanding that she simply did not know how to do life. She had tried to outrun the snowball and was exhausted by the chase. And it's kind of like the great ball player Satchel Page once said, whom I saw, by the way, at Wrigley Field at the end of his career. said, if you are in a race, never look back, because they might be gaining on you. The passage is an invitation to surrender to Jesus Christ. And some of you, frankly, to be quite honest, do life pretty well without Jesus. And you may be in the most precarious position of all. Do you remember the punchline or the takeaway from Wes Carsten's tailgate? This summer, it is dangerous to be full. And so it is. If you're here this morning or turning in the stream, I'm urging you to look over your shoulder today because the snowball is gaining on you. And it will overtake you and it will crush you. You will not outrun it and you need to know that. Our prayer is that you will know that when you come to terms with that very uncomfortable truth that we here at Grace Church are committed to being there for you, not as some sort of spirit guide or crystal ball gazer or fortune teller, but simply as simple fractured people with a great and glorious Savior and we would be honored to introduce you to him. And as I pray this morning, To conclude with the uh, folks serving communion as well as the musicians come up to the front. Father, it really is the elephant in the room. What must I do to be saved? And to think that the answer can be so concisely and succinctly given as to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, that's the ground upon which we stand. It's the ground upon which we, we commit everything. Because in the end, nothing else really matters. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.